We're continuing this theme of helping broken people treasure Jesus, and the issue of brokenness is that it is uh, universal, is on all levels. It is something that we struggle with, this our sinfulness. It is a fact that while when we come to faith in Christ, the, the, the power or the dominion of sin is broken, but we still deal with ongoing issues in our life, ongoing sin. Therefore, all of us walk in brokenness. Some of the brokenness can, is just sometimes seen in the daily issues that we struggle with and have to confess and flee from from time to time. Or it can be a cataclysmic event that absolutely takes us down and, and really destroys our lives to a certain degree. So this morning, we're going to talk about a cataclysmic event in the life of a man named David. And we're going to go to Psalm 51. But the issue regarding David is a well-known story. David... Uh, we find in the book of 2 Samuel, the last part of the, of the book, is at the top of his game. He's in his mid-50s, late-50s. He is a warrior. He is a poet. He is a musician. He is an um, organizer. He is, the Bible says, a very handsome man. He has it all together. In fact, we would call him a few centuries later a renaissance man. He is the man. He's gifted. And, and so David in his late-50s, or the late 40s, uh, he's gone from, as a young man, being pursued by King Saul and living in caves to now living in opulence in a, in a, in, in a palace. He's gone from hiring himself as a mercenary to someone who's an enemy of Israel, and when they found that he was a truly David the warrior, they wanted to put him to death, and so for David to escape being put to death, he started acting like he was insane, and he foamed to the mouth, and he licked the, the doorposts around him. And the king, who was asked to put him to death, said, I've, I've got enough mad men around me. I don't need one more. Leave him alone. So, so he's gone from acting like a madman to being feared, to being universally respected. He had it all going in his way. And yet there's a paradigm in the Old Testament book of Hosea, chapter 13, verse 6. It says that, when I fed them, they became satisfied. And they, when they became satisfied, they became proud. And then they abandoned me. And that happens all the time. God, have mercy upon me. God, have mercy, have mercy. And God meets your need and then he feeds you. You're satisfied. You become proud and then you forget or abandon God. That's what happened in David's life. David had it all together. God has blessed him, and we find that he's now abandoning God. So my thesis this morning is this from the life of David for us to consider that, that in the midst of personal failure, we're going to see, and the father's correction, David treasures the steadfast love and abundant mercy of Jehovah God, realizing he can never out last or outrun the tender mercies of the father who's pursuing him with mercy. David saw the glory of God, the wonder of God, the forgiveness of this founding God, and he ran to it. How much more should we on this side of the cross? So the story goes like this. It's, uh, it's in 1 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. I'll recount it very quickly. David is home when he should have been out at battle, every spring they would go out and shore up the boundaries and get rid of rebel forces. And David decides to stay home in Jerusalem. He sends everybody out in the field and he's out walking on the terrace. 
And he looks over the wall and he sees what the Bible calls a very beautiful woman taking a bath. Her name is Bathsheba. And so David desires her in his heart, runs through the first barrier. He sends a group of people to ask her to come for a personal audience. She probably thought, what am I being asked to do this with the king? This is a great privilege. He brings her in for a personal audience and he basically seduces her. They have an immoral relationship. She leaves. A few weeks later, she sends him a message and says, I am pregnant. Well, the problem is her husband has been in the field fighting with the other valiant warriors. And so David thought, well, I've got to get her husband, whose name was Uriah. I've got to get Uriah back. And so he sends a messenger, says, tell Uriah to come back. And Uriah comes back, probably perplexed. Why, of all the warriors, I am going back to be with in Jerusalem. What does David want with me? He comes back and David says, thank you for being a valiant warrior. Thank you for being a wonderful man. Thank you for fighting with, with dignity. Um, enjoy the evening with your wife. But, but Uriah was a, a valiant guy. And Uriah sleeps with the servants. He doesn't go into his wife to enjoy the favor of marital love. He, he sleeps with the servants. And the next morning, people say, well, David, he slept with the servants. So David can't make out like, well, she's, you know, with child by him. So he calls Uriah in and says, Uriah, what's going on? You're married to a beautiful woman. He says, well, he says, King David, the, the ark of the Lord and the other valiant men are bivouacked in the field, sleeping in tents or under the stars. He says, I alone have been brought in. I, I, I can't enjoy the, the comforts of life when my men are doing this. What a guy. And so David says, well, just, just stay one more night. And so David has a dinner with Uriah. And the Bible says that David got Uriah drunk. Another barrier. He just speeds by. And, and when the evening is over, he kind of pushes Uriah towards his house. Once again, Uriah sleeps with the servants. And David says, what am I going to do? And so he writes a letter to his commander, a guy named Joab. And he says, Joab, Uriah needs to die. What I want you to do is I want you to have some type of make-believe, false, ungovernable, inopportune battle. And I want Uriah to be at the forefront, and I want him to be killed. And he takes the letter, and he seals it with his ring and wax, and he gives the letter to Uriah. <laughs> and he says, now deliver this letter, really deliver your death notice. And he does. And so they have a battle and the people come out and they push him back. And so Joab gives the valiant warriors this command. I want you guys to go real close to the wall. I mean, real close and fight the battle. I mean, so close to the wall that, that someone with a basic ability in archery can kill you. That's what happened. Uriah and some valiant warriors go way too close to the wall, way too close. Arrows pulled, boom, 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 they all, many of them died, including Uriah. So the message was sent to David. David, we've had a battle and we've lost some valiant warriors, and among them is Uriah. David, acting like a magnanimous, gracious man, takes this woman, this very beautiful woman, Bathsheba, and says, I will now marry her after her few days of mourning and brings her into his house. That's the story. King David lies multiple murders, not just Uriah, a bunch of valiant men, deceit, adultery, 
This is King David. A man who the Bible says repeatedly was a man after God's own heart. It's a terrible story. So David's on the throne. Bathsheba's in his house. He's married her. He's there. And one day a man comes into court. He's a prophet. In those days, the word of the God, the word of God came through people before we had the Bible. And so this prophet Nathan walks and he tells a story. He says there's a man who had one ewe lamb. It was like the family pet. He ate at the table, loved this ewe lamb, and he had a little small patch of nothingness next to this bonanza of a sheep farm and this this incredibly wealthy shepherd of thousands of sheep uh, had a guest that came in unexpectedly instead of taking one of his lamb just one of his thousands he took the one only lamb this guy had and he killed it and he fed a lamb supper to his buddy and David in indignation said who is that man he will pay fourfold which is what the Levitical code says you should do. He will pay fourfold for his tragedy and his act of injustice. And Nathan says this, you are the man. Second Samuel 12, verse 7. You are the man. And David says, I've sinned against God. I've sinned against God. In the aftermath of this incredible story, this seedy story, this confrontation, he writes Psalm 51. And we're going to be in Psalm 51 this week and next week talking about brokenness. But hear what he says in Psalm 51. He says this, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions and wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before you. Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness, and let the bones that you have broken Rejoice. Well, first of all, David rejoices in the goodness of the Lord. I mean, he's, he's, he's sitting there and he writes this, this, this psalm in the aftermath of this horrible experience. And he says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercies. And then he says, blot out my Iniquities. The, the word blot, and so when, I, when I think of blot, I think of maybe you've gone through uh, the desert and there's some sand and mire and dirt on your car and, and, and you, you wash it off and, and you, I have trouble getting everything off. So you, you don't always get it off. There's, there's some smudges here and smudges there, but you can still see. That's not what this word, this word means that you've totally wiped it clean. Kind of like the old Etch-a-Sketch. Boom, it's gone. She says, Lord, blot out my iniquities. He says, wash me thoroughly, which means abundantly. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquities and, and, and cleanse me from my sin. 
He's rejoicing in the absolute goodness of God. But one of the things I noticed in this passage that, that he uses the word me or my eight times in the first three verses. He says, have mercy on me, O God. He says, blot out my transgressions. Watch me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. No, my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Me, me, my, my, my. See, one, one of the beauties of this is that, is that real healing takes place when you say before God, I am responsible. There's a book uh, written in the late 80s, 70s, like 78, 79, became very popular in the early 80s, entitled The Road Less Traveled by a guy named Scott Peck, a psychiatrist. Runaway bestseller, one sin rest, and two years later, Scott Peck was baptized as a believer in Jesus and wrote some other books. All very interesting. But in this book, he talked about, he said, the road less traveled, and he talked about how to become a person that is an adult, basically. And one, one thing he said is that you must delay gratification. Delay, you don't always act on what you want to do. Delay gratification. It's basic stuff. But he also said this, he, he said that real change takes place when you say to those around you, I'm, I'm guilty. It's my problem. That's what David's doing here. He cleansed me of my sin, my iniquity, my failures. It's me. And I look at this and I say, do I really believe that God changes us? There's a marriage enrichment course here called Reengage is outstanding. But one of the concepts that gets in your brain is they talk about in your marriage, you stay inside your own hula hoop. You know? You stay inside. You don't, you don't, it's easy to confess the sin of your spouse or your kids or your friends, but you deal with your stuff. That's what David's doing here. Cleanse me of my. Wash me from my sin. I know my transgressions. The second thing is David laments or he grieves over his sin. A broken people who treasure Jesus first grieve over their sin. Verse 3, my sin is ever before me. If you read commentaries on this passage, some people say that David was sitting on the throne thinking he's gotten away with it. He was he was just a-okay. I don't believe the Bible teaches that. I believe David was tormented in his soul because the Holy Spirit of God doesn't let you off the hook. He said, David says, my sin is ever before me. And most people believe that David wrote Psalm 32 as a companion psalm to this. And that's what he says in Psalm 32. He says this, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. That through my groaning all day long. I mean, David may be sitting on the throne, he may be laughing, he may be listening to singers, but he was groaning inwardly. For day and night, verse 4, your hand was heavy upon me and my strength was dried up by the heat of the summer. You see, when, when a, a child of God is involved in unrepentant, ongoing sin, the hand of the Lord is upon them heavily. Your strength is dried up. It's just like the heat of summer that's taking where there's despair and pain. And then verse 6 says this. He says, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. The secret heart. 
inward being, into the place that only God can see and only God knows and only you know the, the, the juxtaposition between the, the gaze of God and, and your understanding. He says, you, you teach me wisdom, Lord, in the, in the secret place of the inner heart. And I really believe that David is thinking about, this is my opinion, I think David is thinking about something happened when we were first introduced to David. He's a 15, 16-year-old boy. He's the youngest of seven brothers. And there's a man named Samuel who's the prophet, the spokesman for God. And the Lord says to Samuel, Samuel, I grieve that I made King Saul the king of Israel. Now take, take a flask of oil, a horn of oil, and, and go and anoint one of the sons of Jesse because he is my man. And Jesse says, I'll do it. I may forfeit my life, but I'll do it. He takes a heifer to make a sacrifice. He goes to, to Jesse's door. He knocks on the door. He says, Jesse, I'm here with a message from God. I need to meet your sons. And so... Jesse brought in a guy named Eliab. In the, in the Jewish home, the pecking order was from the oldest to the youngest. Most preferential, boom, 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 boom. So Eliab's the oldest. And the Bible says Eliab was a tall, good-looking guy. And Samuel said inside his, his spirit, he said, surely this is the one. And then this verse in 1 Samuel 16, 7, says this. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at the height of his stature or his outward appearance. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. The inner heart. He's not the one. And so Jesse says, or so Samuel says to Jesse, is there another? He brings in two, three, four. No, 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 no. Through, 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 through all, all these brothers. And then he says, is there no one left? And as an afterthought, Jesse says, well, there's, a, there's the youngest, but he's taking care of the sheep. Surely he's, you don't meet him. He's the youngest. He's an afterthought. He was a surprise. And it says, David came in and the Bible says he was a young lad with a ruddy appearance. And the Lord said to Samuel, arise, anoint him. He is the one. And I, I can't, I mean, Samuel walked with David for years and years. And you know, when you get together and you're talking to your mentor and you always do, do you remember? Do you remember? Do you remember? I'm, I'm sure Samuel said, David, I think about the day you were anointed. And I remember meeting all your brothers and God saying, no, no, no. And then God said to me, God looks at the inner heart, the secret heart. And you're the guy that God chose. And so I, I think David's sitting on his throne saying, I wish to God I was the man I used to be when I was a 16-year-old kid. Before I was satisfied and grew proud and walked away. And I think, I think he's tormented with that, with that very issue. And then he focuses on his sin, verses 4 and 5. It says this, against you... You only have I sinned. And then what is evil in your sight? You say, well, what, what does that mean? It means that I mean, he, he, he had Uriah killed. He had committed adultery of Bathsheba. He deceived. He had other men killed. And he says only, what it says here is that ultimately, ultimately our sin is against God. 
Yes, we sin against other people, but it always begins and ends with we sin against the purposes of God. And he says, so that you may be justified in your words. In other words, when you pronounce the sentence of guilty upon me, it, you're justified. You're right. And you're blameless in your judgments. And he says, just, just to understand this, verse 5, I was brought forth in iniquity and sin did my mother conceive me. That doesn't mean that having children is sinful. What it means is that, is that sin is part of who we are from the very moment of our conception. We deal with the sin nature from the very moment of our conception. And so David says, I am guilty, I am guilty, I am guilty, I am guilty. And he says before Nathan, he says, Nathan, I have sinned. You see, David saw clearly his own heart at times like this, and he was disgusted. Do you have that experience? Do you sometimes see your heart and your inclinations? I do. And you're disgusted. You're disgusted. And you run to the cross. When I was a, a young guy, my freshman in college, I came to faith in Christ. The Lord saved me. And I would go home in the summer, and my hometown was about 2,000 people. And the thing about a small hometown is everybody knows everything about everything, usually before it happens. And so uh, I go back to my hometown, and I've become a believer, and I have just a few weeks before I go back to the Citadel. And, but I jumped into youth work, and I remember we, we would go to a prison on Monday night, and we took some people to the old folks' home and sang. And, and the word got out, the buster has become a Bible thumper. Because um, everybody knew everything about everybody. And the next, I think it was the next year, you know, you grew up in a home, small town, and you get to know the adults, and the adults speak into your life, and they walk with you, and they go to your sports games, and it's really a sweet thing. And you really, it's, it's, the, the community's good, and the community's there. And, but uh, I, was, I was sitting at my home one day, right before going back to school, and I got a phone call. And the guy said, he said, I, I hate to ask you to do this, but I've called several people, but I need you to go with me to pick up. And he named an older man who had really befriended me. And he says, I need you to help me get him in the car and get him to the hospital. He was about 6'3", 230. He was a big, big guy. And so I found out after all this that he was a problem drinker. He would be sober for months and sometimes a year and then go on a binge. And he'd been on a two or three day binge and we had to give him the hospital to get him dried out. His, his health was not good. So I remember walking into the house. We knocked on the door and we walked in and he was the only one there and went into the room. And of course, the odor hit us and he looked up at me and he said to me and he said to his friend, I don't want him to see me like this. And uh, we put him in the car and took him out. Don't you feel that way about people? I don't want them to really know. I don't want them to see me like this. What do you do? You go to the cross. So, so David says, I'm guilty. Now again, this brokenness is cataclysmic, and I'm not saying that's going to be standard fare, but it is, we are all broken in different ways from time to time and week to week over our sin, over circumstances. So what do you do? 
and you get to verse 7 and 8, and i got to tell you, this may be one of my favorite passages of Scripture in the Bible. Verse 7 and 8, what do you do? Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. So purge me with hyssop. Hyssop was a plant that was used in the Old Testament to dip into blood and to sprinkle on the people to declare that they were free of a disease. You had leprosy and you were cleansed of your leprosy. You would go to the priest and the priest would sacrifice a bird or a lamb and the blood would be drained and he would take the hyssop, he would dip it in the blood and he would sprinkle seven times and he would say, you are clean. Pre-signifying, for-signifying what Jesus would do on the cross. In, in the Exodus, 10 plagues, plague of last few were plague of locusts and darkness and something else, post-locusts, anyway. Ten, but the 10th plague was, Pharaoh says, I will not let them go. I won't let them go. They can't go. And I'm, I'm not going to let the Jews go out of Egypt. And so the Lord said, okay, the 10th plague is the death of the firstborn. So throughout Egypt, in the homes, in the stables, the firstborn died, died to show the power of God. But God said, when the angel of death goes through and among the people of Israel, you take a branch of hyssop and you dip it in the blood of the lamb and you put it on the side of the door frames and the top, and the angel of death will go by. So David's thinking about this imagery. He says, you know, what cleanses me from my sin? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I read this and I go, David really got it. He was looking for the coming Messiah, rejoiced in that. He was hopeful in that. He says, when he says here, she says, purge me with hyssop. Purge me with the goodness of Jesus, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. That's what Christ did on the cross for our sins. And when we come to him, that's what happens to us. Our sins are gone. See, that's why broken people run to Jesus, because they can't do it all. They can't do it on their own. And one of the greatest issues that grieves me is sometimes I think, do we really get the gospel of grace? Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Simply, naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, fly to thee for strength. Wash me, Savior, or I die. That's what David is saying. Thanks be to God for the purging of the blood. And as he understands this, verse 8, which is an incredible verse, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Good grief. The Father in tender love disciplines us. And David says, I am under the disciplined hand of God because of my sin. And I say now with every breath in my being, let the bones that have broken rejoice. I, I, I just... 
Let me hear joy and gladness. The concept of, of, of joy and gladness, the same words are used in Isaiah chapter 9, which talks about the coming Messiah. And it says in Isaiah 9, we'll start in verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who have dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. See? They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Joy and gladness. Really the word for gladness here can be translated throw a party. It's, 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 it's the word picture of somebody who's been away from the Lord or has been gone for a long time and he's come home. And what do you do? You throw a party. I read the Gospels. That's what Jesus does when sinners repent and come to him. He throws a party because he gladly receives. Joy and gladness. The same words, same words in Hebrew are used in, in the book of Esther. Esther is a little book. It's written... 450, 450 years before Jesus came. It's about the king of Persia who takes as his wife a beautiful Hebrew woman named Esther. Esther hides her Jewishness from him. And there is a wicked man named Haman. Haman hates the Jews and all the 127 provinces of Persia. And so Haman connives his way into the heart of the king and says, these Jews don't worship the way we do. They're not like us. We need to put them to death. And so really, Haman was a prototype of the Nazis. He hated the Jews. He was Hitler many years before Hitler. And the thousand-year Reich came to power in 1933. So, so they affixed a day. They were going to send out an edict, and they were going to have a mass killing of all the Jews. And a godly man named Mordecai, who was a cousin of the queen, heard about it. And they talked about it. How do we do this? And so, making a long story short, Haman, a wicked, godless, spiteful, demonic man, was found out. And he was hung by the neck until he was dead by the king. And Mordecai, the Jew, was placed in power. And Esther had great, great authority in the kingdom. But anyway, so... so the edict that went out that said, kill all the Jews, instead another edict went out. It says they, the, the couriers rode, it says twice in the Bible, on swift horses. I mean, really, the Pony Express on steroids. They just, they took the edict out. All the, they said, instead of killing the Jews, honor them. This is what the Bible says. And I, I just, just join, listen, join gladness. This is uh, Esther chapter 8, starting in verse 16. The, 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 the Jews... Oh, sorry. Then Mordecai went out, Mordecai the godly Jew went out from the presence of the king of Persia in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. He became prime minister. This, this, this outcast is now prime minister. Verse 16, the, the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor 
And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for they feared the Jews and and they thought they may do something to them. So they said, where'd you? I mean, so, so what happened? It says gladness and joy. And really the word here means to, 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 to be ecstatically happy. So, so David says, may I be a person who hears joy and gladness. And, and, and these people had joy and gladness. Let me tell you something. Their celebration was not, hey, hey, it's really cool. There's an edict that's been given and we're not going to be put to death. Pass the lamb. I mean, they were like... Dancing in the streets, they were high-fiving or chest-bumping because it was COVID back then. Didn't know about that. It's COVID-1 back then. They were chest-bumping. Uh, so I, I, look at, I look at me. I look at us. Do we hear joy and gladness? Do we hear the, 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 the statement, forgiveness of sin through the work of Jesus, and we're glad? Let the bones you have broken Rejoice which means to shriek ecstatically, to shout with joy. So as I think about this passage, let me close real quickly. Three thoughts. Number one, as I deal with me, me, as you deal with you, this is God's, the Puritan said, this is God's spy in our bosom. This is God's prophet to us today. This is his prophetic word. As you read the Bible, is there a Nathan that points out from the Bible to you and says, you are the man? Is God changing you? Is God changing you? I had a friend talk to me recently about this. He said, you know, do you think God really changes people? I said, Yes. If he doesn't, then the Bible's just not true. Now, he doesn't make an extrovert and introvert or vice versa necessarily, but he changes us by the Spirit. Is God changing you? Secondly, I think of Matthew 13, where Jesus says in verse 16 and 17, he says, Blessed are your eyes and what they see and your ears and what they hear, because I tell you, many righteous men long to see the things you see and didn't see it. They long to hear the things you hear, didn't hear it. And I, I just think, if, if David could say, let me hear joy and gladness. If David could say, cleanse me with hyssop, how much more can I say, as I understand the revelation of Jesus, the Lamb of God, how much more should I say joy and gladness? First Peter 1 says that angels stand on tiptoes longing to see the things that we see. Now really, forgiven, cleansed. Loved. And thirdly, broken people, because they're broken, treasure Jesus. They worship Jesus. They glory in the eternal nature of the second person, the triune God, whose name is Jesus. And that produces joy. So the question is, how is your joy in the Lord over the completeness of what Christ has done? In Jesus' name. Amen.